This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I have to say, Carol, one of my favorite things about Fed Minutes is just sitting here with the team. Kathleen Hayes comes in. She gets all locked in for those headlines to go. And they are rolling. They continue to roll. Market reacting positively, at least on the equity side so far. Yields coming in just a hair. I'm noticing. What is? Yields. Interesting. Yeah. KH, talk to us. Well, uh, yeah. And of course, it looks like this was kind of a a quiet-ish day in the bond market. I think we just heard from Charlie, what's the 10-year notes up in eight, the yields at 2.72. These notes, as you noted, yeah, this is what we've heard from Jay Powell. This is, of course, the Fed minutes. Now, remember, the meeting was, what, three weeks ago, four weeks ago? It was Mm -hmm. December 19th. Yeah. So, uh, and... I must say, when I think about uh, Craig Torres' stories, and Craig is one of our ace-ace. I mean, I think Craig is one of the people on the team who's been covering the Fed as long as I have for many, many years. It's almost like and, he invented the modern Fed beat. Well, we, we, we helped. We both of us helped. Anyway, um, <laughs> minutes of the Fed's December meeting revealed, this is his lead, I like this, policymakers took a more cautious approach to further rate increases than their statement had indicated. Now, yeah. think about this, you guys. The Federal Reserve has a meeting. They work very hard on that policy statement. I mean, the, 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 I'm mm-hmm. sure the staff economists, and then they, they work on it. And then they have three minutes to write up the minutes of the meeting. And it's not like they, the minutes, it's, they're an accurate depiction, but when you write up minutes, you don't like when someone sneezes or tells a joke. That, that, those minutes come out five years later. So they make a decision, and then they have three minutes to write that with their statement. Well, no, they know they write the statement oh. before the decision is made. They know exactly what that okay. statement's going to have. So the statement's very well thought out. What I'm saying is the minutes come out three weeks oh. later, and I can't help but think maybe they realized that people didn't quite understand the extent to which they were saying, we're not on a preset course. We are going to be very data-dependent. And I think partly because they had uh, suggested there could be two rate hikes, and even though it was one less. Um, and, in fact, it's really interesting Fed Reserve, you know, they really have gotten this communication thing down to such a narrow point from the Fed. The word judges in, a, in the statement, you know, judges that more rate hikes will be necessary was aimed at showing data dependency. I'm sorry, how many people got that, right? I think that's another reason people thought, this is kind of hawkish. They're just going to keep raising interest rates. So I think these yeah. minutes potentially were intentionally written to make it very clear what they want to as, uh, emphasize, which, yes, Jay Powell has said this, I think, even before these minutes. Well, the- what's interesting, Chris Condon, we've got a great uh, Bloomberg blog the going live, on yes. on the Fed Minutes. I love this live blog. So everybody on our Fed team, economics team, they're weighing in on these Fed Minutes. And Chris Condon, who covers the Fed for us here at uh, Bloomberg News, is uh, writing some commentary to the line from the Fed Minutes that says, many Fed officials, whoops, already felt, sorry, it just moved on me, many Fed officials already felt on December 19th that the Fed could be patient on further hikes, which is interesting, right? Because he says this suggests perhaps that Powell simply didn't hammer that message enough in his press conference. It's the same message that has since calmed investors. So it is interesting, Kathy, yep. and it yep. piggybacks on what you just said. So, you know, they felt that way already, but it didn't come out 
certainly in that Powell press conference. Uh, and it really took Powell talking recently at that Atlanta Fed meeting to kind of calm investors, right. calm markets. Oh, so yes. Dave, yeah. The, you just clarify the, the panel with Janet Yellen. Yes. Right. yes. And Ben, ben Bernanke just John last Atlanta. Friday. Yeah. yeah. So Dave Wilson, stocks editor, come on in here because, you know, we saw a little bit of a move uh, in the U.S. equity trade here, but nothing dramatic, still off its session highs. Is this just the market saying, okay, good, they're continuing to do what we thought they were going to do. I mean, the do. Dow is up about 37 points since this came out across. Right. When you say off the session high, we should point out the session high was reached just after the minutes yeah. came out. So in essence, what we've seen is sort of a reinforcement of what's been happening really uh, since about uh, an hour and a half into trading uh, when we saw the S&P 500 get to its lows for the day and then move back up. So in other words, it, it, it's not like what came out in, in the minutes really suggested any change in view for investors, you know, that, that was meaningful. Just a, a little bit of back and forth that you tend to get when these uh, sort of announcements come out. Well, I'd like to add, too, I think this is interesting because we knew there were no dissents among the voting members of the committee, okay? But we know that there's a handful who don't vote regularly. Regularly, They rotate the vote among the Federal Reserve Bank presidents. And um, the vote to hike rates was unanimous, but the minutes showed, quote, a few participants favored no change. I think this is important, too. Now, we can guess probably Jim Bullard on the St. Louis Fed who's been saying, hey, you got a fat, flat yield curve. Inflation isn't rising. We really don't need to raise rates. But there were a few few. That's more than one, probably more than two. And I think that will uh, resonate with people, some investors, some economists out there, not the majority, but definitely some who say, you know what, the Fed has done enough. They don't need to do more. They can afford to wait and see, which is what they have signaled now. But then those were against the idea of raising rates. And let's just say, you know, President Trump does not go about his Fed criticism in a very delicate matter. And in fact, I think in some ways he made it hard for the Fed not to raise rates at December meeting. But there, he, he's not the only person in the world who thought, you know, you really don't need to do that rate hike. But let me just reiterate, after someone, you know, tried to say don't do it, if the Fed hadn't done it, they right. would have been criticized forever as having caved into Trump. Well, this goes again to minutes versus what we got in the press conference at that last Fed meeting in December. And what we heard from Jay Powell, Chris Condon, again, our Fed reporter weighing in, uh, just talking about in terms of... Of sorry, the, the blog keeps moving <laughs> on me. They're writing too fast for you. Uh, now I lost it, but it was talking about. Um, here it is. Uh, the minutes show the committee was attentive to recent financial market volatility and risks to the outlook. And Chris Condon says that's from our main story, but it didn't really come through in Powell's press conference. So again, still new Fed learning in terms of communication, right? And I guess what you want to say in a press conference. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, what do you make, Kathleen, of basically with the Fed minutes, maybe we're stronger on certain things, but we didn't get that from Chair Powell. Why would that be? I think one of the things that that really kind of just dis- that was kind of distracting to people. Well, first of all, he emphasized how strong the economy was. It is. because of the Trump factor that he was afraid of maybe well kowtowing to Trump? Or what? I think I think it wasn't that he was afraid. I just think that they it was very difficult not to raise the rate, and particularly they really believe the economy is strong. And guess what? We had a jobs report that was a blowout. That report supported the Fed's view the economy is yeah. very strong. Fair enough. Now, do you need to raise interest rates? That's the next question. Uh, and I think when when. 
when Jay Powell's asked the question about the balance sheet reduction, which was set up not for the Fed to decide every month, how much should we reduce the balance sheet? No, it's a plan. It's set in stone. And this year, they do more per month. The plan was developed about, what, one and a half, two years ago. And he said, well, yeah, this is how it works. It's working fine. It's on autopilot. All people heard was autopilot. Oh, my God. They see two rate hikes next year. They see further rate hikes. They're on autopilot. What are they doing? Right. And I think it was difficult for people to hear the nuance and all the all of that. But, Dave, we are seeing equities pick up momentum here. Continually. Right. Absolutely. Continuing I mean, uh, you know, you've got a fairly broad-based advance going on. Uh, technology stocks leading the way along with energy, which is doing well because oil prices are up. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely being well-received, the, the latest seven And I'm just going to say Dow was up about 126 before the Fed minutes. Jason, it's now up about 180 points. Right. It is now touching uh, the session highs. So we'll get more on that. Kathleen, Dave, thank you so much. The connected car becoming even more connected. Here for the buzz on some of the latest products and services. Let's head out to Las Vegas where CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, is underway. Sanjay Dewan is Chief Technology Officer, President of Connected Services at Harman, and he joins us. Hey, nice to have you here with Jason Kelly and myself. Um, I feel like, you know, we know the car, the vehicles in general, just becoming more and more uh, full of technology and becoming more and more connected. Tell me what are some of the newer trends that you guys are involved in at this point, Sanjay? No, hi, Carol. Uh, again, thank you so much for having me on your show. You know, I think, um, you know, we're very focused on, uh, you know, delivering to our customers, you know, what we call uh, EPM. You know, in the car industry, you know, we have always focused on RPM, you know, speed, performance, etc., and all mm-hmm. that stuff is still... Uh, you know, going to be a focus, but uh, with with by EPM, I mean experience per mile. So with Harman, you know, what we are basically doing is kind of you know using connectivity and uh, using you know a number of you know interesting, exciting products that we are launching here in uh, here at CES to to deliver an amazing experience uh, uh, to the driver. So let me give you a couple of uh, you know examples of that um, voice. Um, is going to kind of, you know, take the center stage of how the driver communicates with uh, inside the car, with the car. So, uh, you know, typically, traditionally, you know, we have a lot of buttons, touch screens, you know, all that stuff, you know, consu- you know, confusing knobs and so on and so forth. But moving forward, you know, in the industry as a whole and, and also the products that, that Harman, you know, is launching and bringing, voice, uh, you know, becomes the, the, the a natural voice, natural language. You know, you can basically talk to the car and car will basically kind of, you know, you know, take the necessary actions, you know, that you want it to take. Uh, second, uh, you know, I think uh, many, many times we're talking inside the car with our family, our friends, our kids, and we're basically kind of, you know, turning over. If I'm driving, I'm turning over, looking, you know, and, and, and trying to kind of, you know, direct my voice to different passengers. You know, we're, you know, innovating to launch some new in-car communication products so that communicating inside the cars kind of, you know, becomes more natural and more uh, easier. And last example I'll give is, you know, uh, uh, we've launched... Um, you know what what uh, what is an industry leading um, driver monitoring systems to basically assist the driver from a safety and security standpoint so we're kind of doing using a um, infrared front facing camera we basically detect the emotions the um, uh, 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 drowsiness 
the uh, attentiveness and the cognitive load, kind of you know what the driver may be thinking and doing, you know, to basically assist the driver in driving. So if the driver is you know drowsy or if the driver is texting, you know, we basically kind of you know you know kick in the safety and security systems of the car to make the driver safe and help the driver with driving. So, Sanjay, that all sounds really interesting. And I wonder, given that it feels like from what we're hearing from our colleagues and others, this is sort of the the year of the car in many ways uh, out at CES. What are you hearing as you walk the floors, as you talk to potential customers, your partners? Where are we in the evolution of the car, especially as it relates to a lot of the automation uh, that you've been uh, describing? Mm Mm-hmm. The, there are four mega trends in the in the car industry, which you know the whole industry is driving towards. And these four uh, mega trends, uh, Jason, are number one, the car is getting more and more electric. Uh, second is the car is getting more connected. So just like you know we have our connected uh, computers, connected phones to the internet, same thing is happening in the car as well. The third is car is getting more autonomous. So, you know, you know, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, what level of autonomy that is debatable and, and uh, you know, uh, it'll happen over a period of time, but there will be more and more assisted driving functions, autonomous functions will, will, will happen. And the fourth is car is getting more shared. So these are the four kind of, you know, mega trends, which, which uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the industry as a whole. And I think what you see, you know, here on the floors of different companies, whether it's Harman or other companies, you basically see these in the products and technologies basically coming together to support these mega trends. And it's interesting, too. We just did a story, was it, I think, Jason, the last week that we talked about self-driving cars in particular and how maybe it's not going to happen as quick not as we all thought. The it's not quite around the corner. Putting the brakes on a little bit. I mean, we have a ways to go, Sanjay. So maybe, you know, we start to focus on more of the things of what you guys are doing in terms of a connected car. Yeah, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, by the way, uh, you know, any of uh, these mega changes, you know, take time. And, and uh, you know, uh, autonomous, you know, having a fully um, uh, level level four, level five autonomous car is, is a, you know, uh, I'm an engineer. And, and uh, you know, it's a massive problem to solve, you know, right. where a lot of computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, computer vision, uh, other technologies all come together, basically. Um, but, you know, there is mega steps that the industry is taking to kind of, you know, bring more safer cars on the, lo- uh, on the, on the road. Um, you know, if you look at uh, the cars of today, using a front-facing camera, you know, uh, or uh, 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 radar, you know, it basically, you know, detects, you know, uh, cars in front, cars around it, and basically kind of, you know, yeah. it really makes, you know, amazing uh, uh, safety uh, uh, progress. I agree. The jump in just, I'm trying to think we bought a car three years ago, and the jump from the previous car that we had yeah. to that car in terms of safety um, technology was just, it blew my mind. Much safer yeah. car. Sanjay, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Sanjay Dewan, finding some time for us, uh, carving out some time uh, as he's at uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, CES, out in Las Vegas. He's the Chief Technology Officer, President of Connected Services at Harman. Right. And it is interesting to hear uh, about that. And I do think back to that story we had in Bloomberg Business Week yeah. over the summer that, uh, you know, 
self-driving could be thrown off by snow. That was one of the biggest problems right? that, uh, they have to solve. It's not the sort of thing well, uh, that immediately and jumps like forward. merging into traffic. Like, we do it how many times a day? And so it's tricky. As long as I'm the field, paying the cost to be the boss. Uh, Drake Bennett is here with us, and he penned one of my favorite stories, at least, in Bloomberg Business Week this week. It's about PayPal, and what I like about it, Carol, is that it obviously is very relevant in the moment mm-hmm. because of everything that's happening in this company, but it's also an amazing little mini history lesson into one of the most influential groups uh, in Silicon Valley and what they essentially wrought kind of by accident. Drake's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So PayPal, Drake, take us back because this was a company sort of created a little bit by accident or certainly not created to be what it became. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of tech companies, there were a couple pivots along the way. But I think what was striking about this one is just the the sort of great lengths the founders went to to try to prevent the company from turning into what it eventually became. Uh, the original idea, well, the, about the fourth pivot was to come up with this uh, money transfer app for uh, Palm Pilots, which were at the time, you know, the state of the art. I mean, that technology. you had me at Palm Pilot, right, by the way, right. in this story. Like, what a throwback. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, uh, you know, mobile technology circa, what, late 1990s. And uh, the idea was that you could, you know, with a lot of plugging in and unplugging, you could transfer money from one Palm Pilot to the other. That was the app they created. Uh, but Max Levchin, who is one of the PayPal founders, one of the who's gone on to be, you know, a member of the famous PayPal mafia, computer uh, scientist, right? Right. Yeah. Um, he not only helped create this app, he also decided to to create this online demo of the app because a lot of people didn't have Palm Pilots. You know, maybe if they saw how this worked, they would go out and buy a Palm Pilot. So he created this thing where you could sit down at your computer and kind of simulate the process, but in the process of doing that, actually send someone money. Um, it was meant to just be a simulation, but then these early eBay sellers found this thing online and realized if they put this in their eBay page, they could actually use this as a working web payment tool. And so they started doing that. This is why we love the internet. Right. No, people <laughs> go find stuff. They repurpose it. Hey, look, it, it works. Right. I mean, the, the, one of the ironies, of course, is that at the time, he thought this was a terrible idea. He wanted nothing to do with it. You know, e-commerce, as people were starting to call this, you know, new and exotic activity, was people selling Pez dispensers to each other. There was rampant fraud. He just thought it was a non-starter. So he basically tried to block this and sabotage it until finally it became clear that this was a huge market and they should just, you know, let things continue. What's what's wild, too, is I I was thinking about this, and I think you pointed out in your story, and I don't know if you thought about this, Jason, is, like, he paved the way for all of us to be like, sure, I'll send money to you. Like, I don't know who you are, and maybe I'm going to get something in return. But I sold you a Pez dispenser, and you need me to pay me. (laughs) But, like, like, right? You think about how much we guard, like, kind of our finances and our checking account at the time and things like that and our credit cards. But we were like, okay, I'll send you money. No, it's true. It really was... Like breaking a, down the barriers. It was a real kind of Wild West situation back then. And I think Levchin and, uh, you know, some of the other founders of PayPal are, you know, should get a lot of credit for basically cleaning up a lot of that fraud and making it, 
you know, creating this world in which we do pay strangers, we send money to strangers <laughs> online. Um, you know, it's not always a good idea, but it, there's a lot more safeguards than there used to be, and, and PayPal really helped put a lot of those in place. So fast forward to today, where it's a company with, what, 250 million users uh, around the world. Mm-hmm. About a third of e-commerce somehow touches uh, PayPal. They've got a suite of products and companies through some acquisitions. And now they're in a little bit of a moment of what happens next, right? Right, exactly. I mean, I think a lot of people still think of this as the, you know, the button you use to pay for stuff on eBay. You know, at this point, PayPal, as you point out, is kind of all over the, the online commerce landscape. They own Venmo. They, own, they process a lot of the payments that, you know, that, that power things like Uber and Airbnb. And, you know, they are kind of – they've partnered up with tech companies. They've partnered up with finance companies. And they've done really well by doing it, but I think the constant tension in this industry is that all these companies depend on each other, but they're also sort of competing with each other to see if maybe we can kind of cut out that middleman. And so PayPal is always in a bit of a precarious position because of that. Right. Everybody's competing for fees. But that's really kind of the point of your story that these companies, whether it's uh, the banks, the processors, the card networks, like, are all competing to be the one to do the transaction for you and collect those fees, right? Because there's tons of fees out there. What's interesting is PayPal and its most current CEO, I believe it was, right, who figured out, you know what, it's better for us to be friends and kind of work together and we can all kind of get a piece of this pie. Right. I mean, Dan Shulman has has been a huge proponent of this idea of you know, consumer choice, which is, um, you know, the old PayPal model was that you would, you know, the, the default on, on your PayPal account was your bank account. And it was kind of a pain to switch that um, to, say, a credit card. And the reason for that is because it's much more lucrative to, for PayPal to do that. They get to keep a bigger, a much bigger chunk of the fee if they do it that way. That was, you know, not really acceptable to Visa and MasterCard, which are these enormously powerful companies in this space. So what Shulman decided to do was basically play nice with them, make it easier to incorporate credit cards into your PayPal account, forego that money, but also, you know, in return, get a much better uh, relationship with these incumbents in the industry who at the time were talking about destroying PayPal. And how much are they looking over their shoulder at people who could essentially sort of PayPal them? I mean, they constantly are. I think there's a lot of, you know, these new startups that are taking little Square. pieces of it. Yeah, and Square is, you know, PayPal has been, uh, you know, their stock has done really well. Um, but, you know, Square's has, if anything, done better. Uh, right. And so, you know, it's a, a very fluid marketplace. And, uh, you know, the, the technology changes really quickly and habits change really quickly. And I think that's always a factor. Did I read your story that they are also issuing a credit card or something? Or they're a doing debit kind of, card. A debit yeah. card, like some more traditional. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting because tr- part of what they're trying to do, right, is figure out how to further collapse this distinction between econ- like online commerce and brick-and-mortar real-world commerce. And so one of the things they did, you know, it's actually Square did this before they did, is, is come up with this debit card that allows you mm-hmm. to basically take money in, out of your Venmo account and turn it into actual cash that you can spend in the world. So it's part of this increasing trend toward, you know, these transactions, like is an Uber transaction, is that e-commerce or right. non-e-commerce? And I think there's more and more of this uh, kind of uh, blending. It is a really interesting point, too, because, you know, you're, you're essentially using electronic payment, which we've been using for a long time, yeah. for a physical experience. So when, you know, where's the line there? That's right. a great point. Right, right. And there's these, you know, there's these stores, you know, Amazon has one of them. There's a bunch of them in China where you don't, there's no checkout, there's right. no shopping carts. Right. It's just you take your phone in there, you put the stuff you want in your pocket, and you walk out. And 
uh, you know, it's basically just your phone and they're tracking you. And, and I think that you're going to see more and more of that. Right. And, they, and they've also talked about it's not just about going after e-commerce, but just commerce oh. overall. Yeah. Drake Bennett, Projects and Investigations Reporter for Bloomberg Business Week and Bloomberg here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Uh, this story uh, that you wrote with Julie Verhage, it's on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com now. Carol, I feel like gene editing is one of the most interesting, yeah. potentially controversial no. uh, at times. We've spent a little bit of time talking about it over the last month or so. It came up in our conversations around the Bloomberg 50. Julie, Julie, excuse me, Sunderland is the CEO of eGenesis based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but she's out in San Francisco this week for the big JP Morgan healthcare conference. And she joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio there in SF. Julie, great to have you with Carol and myself. Pleasure to be on. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing because you were really getting into the the very core of this gene editing issue, you know, talking about organs, tissues, right down to the cellular cellular level. I can't speak, but you're, hopefully you'll help me out. <laughs> sure. So um, the, the mission of eGenesis is actually to solve uh, the shortage of organs and cells to save patients' lives. And the way that we're doing that is by using the latest, um, coolest gene editing uh, technology to edit uh, animal genomes to produce human-compatible organs and cells. It blows my mind. So xenotransplantation. So I'm just curious about how far along we are in this process. I remember a few years ago uh, being out on the West Coast. I can't remember what building. I was actually doing something with Johnson & Johnson because they kind of had these labs for startups and so on and so forth, but came across... Oh, shoot. I can't remember whether it was. Uh, I'll have to think about it. Uh, anyway, big guy. Uh, maybe it was Ventner. I'm trying to think. Was it Craig Ventner? Yeah, Craig Ventner. Right, who was also, I think, doing this whole idea of like farming organs. And we, I feel like, uh, Julie, to some extent, we've been talking about it for a while. Yeah. Um, where are we, though, in this process? Yeah, so there's actually a long history of xenotransplantation. And about uh, two decades ago, there was a huge amount of work done by sort of b- uh, big biopharma mm-hmm. uh, in this sector. And essentially, it got shut down by the FDA because of safety risks associated with what are called porcine endogenous retroviruses. Uh, there was concern. It's a, it's a pretty small risk, but there was a concern that there were th- those viruses would pass into the human system, especially in immunocompromised patients. Uh, as well, uh, at that time, in order to actually get a human-compatible organ, you have to address some of the immunological issues right. uh, that really stimulate the, the human immune system to reject these, uh, these organs and cells. And so we weren't really there 20 years ago, and the FDA just wouldn't allow it to move forward. So it's been about two decades since there's been significant progress. But gene editing is such a powerful tool uh, that has a- allowed us to actually address those two big constraints uh, and, and move forward in terms of uh, that prospect of an unlimited supply of organs and cells for patients. And Julie, when when you start to socialize this a, a little bit, you know, even to doctors, um, much less to, to patients, I mean, how much, this is an oversimplified question, I know, but how much do people say, I'm sorry, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, this really does seem sort of around the corner and probably for an everyday person, uh, daunting to, to say the least, and, and maybe a little bit scary. 
You know, it it is. It does sound a bit like science fiction, but when you get down to the the specific technical aspects of of what we're doing and our ability to uh, engineer cells uh, and then gener- use essentially animals as bioreactors to generate organs and cells, you know, it's a very technical problem. And right. so, a lot of the work that we've done over the last couple of years is just, you know, it, it looks like anything else a normal biotech would do, which is go figure out, you know, how do we solve this problem? How do we understand the human immune system? How do we do adaptations that allow us to really you know, engineer in the way that we are in other cool therapies like 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 CAR T. Julie, I think about our audience here at Bloomberg, smart audience, and we talk often, as Jason said, you know, we talk about kind of the new avenues where healthcare and treatments are going. But I do wonder, from an investment perspective, I mean, how do investors need to look at it? I always feel like anything when it deals with genetics and gene editing and I think about how long we talked about mapping the human genome for a long time and waiting for those small biotechs you know to become bigger and pay off like how do we need to approach it from an investment perspective yeah you know I you know this there are cycles where you have a new technology and then it goes through a a period where we have to kind of work out the kinks and I think that that's true about uh, about CRISPR-Cas9 and gene editing in general Uh, and we're big supporters of you know Editas and Intellia and all these other great companies we actually think the xenotransplantation application of gene editing is one of the most promising. And the reason for that is that, you know, all of the sort of the safety issues of, of actually editing directly into a human, uh, the concerns about the off-target cuts, um, the ability of the genome to repair itself, we don't have that in xenotransplantation because we're editing at the cellular level and then generating organs and cells within animals uh, that by the time they get into humans, they're safe and effective. So we think we're going to have the most sort of commercially ubiquitous uh, application of gene editing um, because we don't have to we don't have as, as, as we don't have the concerns that you might have with some of the human therapeutics so from an investment point of view uh, it's I think it's a pretty exciting opportunity here Julie Sunderland is chief executive officer of eGenesis she's based in Cambridge Massachusetts joining us out in San Francisco from our Bloomberg 960 studio participating in the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. We heard a lot of good interviews uh, from oh, yeah. out there this week. Taylor, Taylor Riggs was, doing a uh, lot. was out there. I mean, it really is the the place to be, candidly, and always look for the big headlines uh, coming out. But this is so intriguing. There is, as Julie said, a science fiction aspect to it. But when you start to really get into it, right. uh, this is real stuff. Right. You think about the possibility of being able to replace an organ that will be accepted by you. It's just, I don't know, blows my mind. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Cole Smead back with us, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager over at Smead Capital Management. They've got $2.2 billion in assets under management. Smead with us. Cole Smead, that is, of course. <laughs> Sorry. Just call him Smead. I'm just going to call you Smead. Are you okay with that? That's okay. Yeah. No, it's really <laughs> it kind of works. You've probably been called worse, I right, feel like Cole? It's a, Come on. Don't you feel like it's a great Western yeah. Smead? My yeah, name is exactly. Smead. Um, hey, Cole Smead. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. We've had a nice little bounce off the bottom here. Uh, how are you guys looking at uh, the markets right now? Are you finding opportunities? Are you buying thinking that maybe uh, we've bottomed out here and there's some opportunities? 
Yeah, no, it's a good question, Carol. I, I mean, we're, we think we're pretty still early on in the whole saga of, you know, tech and, and the market not being what people thought it was. As my colleague wrote, my colleague Tony wrote in his piece, Price for Clarity, um, you know, the higher the markets went, the, the cheaper people thought stocks looked. And <laughs> add things in like the sugar rush of tax reform and so on and so forth. Think, let, let's go back two years, okay? Most businesses, their, their, their sales have not changed that much. Their gross margins on their products haven't changed. What really changed was the bottom line as it pertains to taxes. The, the, the bigger portion came to the shareholders in lieu of the government. The only problem is the economic value hadn't changed, and the street got incredibly bullish off the back of that. So, you know, what's going on in a handful of the tech names? We think we're really early on in that. At the same time, from a 10-year perspective as stock pickers, we're very mindful of the fact that, you know, the broad indexes are probably only going to make 5 or 6%. And how can you make returns better than that is the name of the game for individual and institutional investors out there. So let's talk about some of those names that you like and that, that you're picking. You know, one that was uh, shared with us uh, ahead of time was uh, Discovery. Fascinated by that. And I, you know, I remember when all the merger action was going on over the summer with the various media assets. Discovery was one that does seem to come up as a very attractive uh, potential acquisition for uh, especially some of the next gen content names. What do you make of that? Well, to your point, uh, I think I remember it was David Saslav was at a conference yesterday, mm-hmm. and he commented that Netflix did try to come after uh, their talent. Yeah. Why? Because yeah. they have some of the best content out there. I mean, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines are America's couple, and they teach how teach you how to make your house better and covet your neighbor's house more, and that's quite a good thing in American economics. So it's the kind of thing where they've put together really low cost content relative to. Hollywood or the category, if you will, and people are very interested in either how to replicate that or to how to take those economics away. But to your point, there is a buyer out there, and it's probably at a much higher price, in our opinion. It's all about the ship flap, right? Isn't that what it is? Am I saying it right? Pardon me? You know, uh, Say it again? Come on. If you watch Chip and Joanna Games, they, they, they use as a chip flap, like the old wood. Oh, on right. The, on yeah. The, on the, yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the restored wood or like kind of the old barn wood. Yep. <laughs> Just saying. That. That's what it's about, but it's really popular. They really um, are America's couple. They really are. I thought that was they us, are. but apparently it's not. Well, you know. Well, win some, you know yeah, got to work Making it. Waco, Texas great again, right? I know, <laughs> right? Right? Expanding their empire, that's for sure. Hey, talk to us about American Express. This is another name that you find kind of interesting, and I feel like this is kind of timely because we just did uh, a great story with our Drake Bennett about PayPal and uh, you know processing payments and how PayPal has linked up with a lot of the card providers uh, to get, uh, you know, to kind of go after all of the transactions that uh, are being done either online or just in the regular commerce space, retail space. Uh, tell us a little bit about American Express and what your thinking is here. That was a great story, by the way. I listened to it. Uh, here's the pivots in the history of American Express. They started out, Henry Wells, who started Wells Fargo, went to Europe, could not get letters of credits, and that begat the, the, the you know, traveler's checks business. And then Diners Club came around and then eventually begat the credit card business, Okay. So the biggest question on them was they disagreed with Costco a few years ago. They broke off that engagement, and there were big questions around them as a major wealthy credit card company like they've been historically known. And all the data argues that you know it's the number one card of millennials. And the biggest question we really look at is what's our opportunity for the next five years? We're going from a society that was built around savers, a.k.a. boomers. The over-55 group grew from 96 to today, and that is peaking roughly this year. And the group coming in behind them, the three largest cohorts in two years will be 
25 to 29, 30 to 34, and 35 to 39. So here's my point. We have a lot of spenders coming through the pipe. That is quite a good thing if you're collecting higher fees like American Express versus Visa and MasterCard collecting slivers in comparison. Have they figured it out? Because I think for a while we were talking about Chase Sapphire and how the millennials love their card and all the perks and the services, and American Express was kind of lagging. Have they kind of figured it out? Yeah, no, we, we think so. No. Now, uh, use the Sapphire thing as an example. Did that make them think about how do we grow our marginal customer? I, no question about it. Hence, you had Uber partnership come up, Saks partnership come up. They've had things come up that's caused them to want to think about this more appropriately. But what did they do at the same time, Carol? They raised the fee. Hmm. And as a business owner, you know, uh, mirror, mirror on the wall, can we raise our prices this fall? Is what we want our businesses asking. And with a great business, the mirror looks back and says, why wait? And that's what Amex has been up to. Cole Smead, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager for Smead Capital and Management. Poet. And a poet. The guy's it? got away with words. That's why we call him Smead. Uh, joining us from Seattle, always a pleasure to check in with you. Some good names. I love talking about some of those names. And a, and a nice uh, mix there, too. The media space, I feel like it is definitely ripe for some consolidation. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.